Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Dr. Lance Dotis, who is the author of Breaking Addiction and also The Heart of Addiction, and he's with, uh, with Harvard University. And our second guest will be Paula DeSanto, who runs Minnesota Alternatives, which is a non-12-step treatment program in Minnesota. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a quick little blurb here for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is Dr. Lance Dotis. As I said, author of Breaking Addiction. He's with uh, Harvard University, a professor there. And Lance, welcome to the show this evening. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. How are you doing this evening? I'm fine. Good, good. I was reading your book, and uh, one thing you were talking about uh, was the idea that addiction is a displacement behavior. Could you tell our audience you know, what a displacement behavior is and how it relates to addiction? Sure. Uh, the way addiction uh, works is that people feel are in a circumstance where they feel overwhelmed, helpless, extremely frustrated, and uh, instead of taking a direct action that would uh, deal with that, they do something that is a substitute for direct action. So the word displacement is, is just the same as the word substitute in this context. So, for example, uh, uh, in the... Uh, 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 in, in the one story uh, in the in the book, there's a man who is uh, uh, quite upset at having his uh, work piled on top of him. He he suffered with alcoholism. He had work piled on top of already too much work in the middle of the day, and he said to himself, "By God, I'm going to have a drink when I go home," and he did. So, of the choices that he might have had in that moment when he decided to have the drink in the middle of the day, they were. He could have gone to his boss, or he could have refused to do the work, or he could have done a, 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 a you know, a limited job at it. There were a lot of things he could have done that, had he done them, would have been a more direct way to deal with his frustration and his sense of helplessness. But for personal reasons, uh, which uh, I explain in the book, uh, he, he, he felt he couldn't do any of those more direct things. So he solved the problem of his feeling trapped or helpless by drinking. Uh, a number of hours later, and so it was a displacement. He didn't feel helpless when he decided to drink because he made a decision. He wasn't helpless. He was going to do something that would make him feel better. So he had solved his helplessness trap, uh, but he did it not by taking a direct action. So that's when you do an indirect action like that, a substitute action, that's what we call the addiction. Okay, uh, your book, uh, Breaking Addiction, it's your new book. It's a seven-step handbook for ending addiction. And the first step you talk about here is how to know if you have an addiction. And how can people know if they have an addiction? Well, there are there are basically two two ways. The usual way, the standard way, which is okay, is to look at whether uh, something that you are doing is causing you trouble in your life. Uh, and, and that's that's 
been around for a very long time. You know, if if it's alcohol, for example, if you've been arrested for driving under the influence and your uh, your spouse is divorcing you and you're losing your job because you're hungover, it's pretty clear that you must have a problem with it. But there really is a better way to do that diagnosis, and that's from the inside out. Because the problem with looking at the effects of drinking is that sometimes people have alcoholism, and it has no bad effects. It's still alcoholism, uh, uh, but outside the outside world isn't affected by it. Uh, and sometimes people are, do things that cause bad effects, but it's not alcoholism. So the, the better way to do it is to look at what causes you to drink, not what the effects of drinking are, but what causes it. That's the inside-out view. And if you can see that what, when you feel the urge to drink, or it doesn't have to be drinking, of course. It could be take a drug or eat um, or shop. It doesn't matter. But when you feel that urge, is it because you are feeling overwhelmed and helpless and you need to get out of that sense of being in a trap? And it makes you feel out of the trap. If that's the case, then it's an addiction because it's serving an emotional purpose. If you drink only because you're at a party or uh, everyone else is doing it or something like that, that's very different. And, you know, with um, uh, kids, for example, who do a lot of things because everyone is doing it, uh, including taking dangerous drugs, it certainly isn't good for them to do it. But the question often arises, is that an addiction or not? And since it's dangerous... You can't use the old-fashioned way of telling because it's dangerous whether it's an addiction or not. But if you want to know whether it's an addiction, you can say, you know, do you do this because all the kids are doing it? Yeah. Do you do it at any other time? Well, no, I only do it because all the kids are doing it and I do it with them. Well, that's not an addiction. doesn't mean it isn't dangerous, but it's important to make the diagnosis correctly. So I think understanding the cause of addiction rather than just looking at its effects is important. Well, I would agree with that. I think we see that uh, a lot of young people, college-age people, they engage in heavy drinking or drug use. They finish college. They get a job. They get married. They get responsibilities. They they give it up. They mature out of it, as some people call it. Right. I agree with that. Okay. I'm going to go on to your step two here. How to think about yourself if you have an addiction. Well, the point there is uh, we in our culture have tended to classify people who have addictions as a separate group, addicts. And addicts have a bad name because they're thought of as different from everyone else. They, they lie, they steal, you know, they're, they're uh, unable to control themselves, all these things that people say about, quotes addicts. Um, and so to if you do have an addiction it's important that you not think of yourself as in this bad group there is no such thing as this group all people who suffer with addictions are different from uh, each other so uh it's important to understand that what addiction is is no more and no less than a, a compulsive behavior like we all have to some degree if you have a compulsion to drink, well, that's what we call alcoholism. If you have a compulsion to uh, gamble, then we call it compulsive gambling. Uh, but if you have a compulsion to keep the 
things neat on your desk, that's also a kind of compulsion. It's not a dangerous one, but it may very well be the same kind of emotional issue. So it's because addictions are so dangerous that they've been set off, but that doesn't mean that they're actually very different or that the people who have addictions are very different. Uh, In particular, it's important to understand, once you understand the psychology of addiction, which is uh, what I've been interested in in all these years, once you understand that, it's important to, to realize that you can have uh, uh, an addiction and be just as healthy emotionally as your neighbor who has no addiction or no other symptom that's obvious to you. We all have some things, and addiction is just just one of them. It's, it's no more and no less than a, than a symptom like, like other symptoms, like being anxious or depressed or having, you know, a fear of flying or, you know, having some trouble in relationships. I mean, these are all symptoms, and there's no reason to set yourself apart from the rest of the human race. Yes, uh, in my own experience, I went through more traditional treatment, and some of these more traditional treatments want people to say, you know, we're all alike. They were telling me, you know, that we are all pathological liars and tell me, you know, what a liar you are. And that was never an issue for me. I've never been a liar. Actually, I had the opposite problem. I had no tact. I would tell the truth at the worst possible (laughs) times. You know, that was actually... That was actually one of the things that was driving my excessive drinking. Uh, so, you know, we yeah, it's really good to realize that you know, people with a, an addiction an addiction problem, uh, they are all different individuals and they're not all alike. And they're really very often, you know, they're like everybody else. That's right, absolutely. And uh, if you if you if you were to look at it from the standpoint of psychiatric studies, that's been shown many times uh, that uh, you, you know you can't the the way to know what a per, who a person is is to know that person if someone says to me well mr x has alcoholism you haven't told me anything yet i still have to i it's much more i'd much i'd know much more about him if you told me that uh, uh you know that uh, uh that that mr x has been uh, uh had difficulty his whole life in making relationships and he uh, has uh, uh, terrible self-esteem, and you told me a few more things about him, I'm beginning to get a picture of him. But the fact that he has alcoholism doesn't tell me anything. Okay, let's look at your step three here, recognizing the key moment in addiction. Tell me more about this. Well, the key moment is important because most people, traditionally, when they, or or just by by. Uh, it's, it's, it seems like common sense. When they think about their addictive act, let's stick with alcohol for a moment, they usually think about the act itself. They think it's important to focus on having that drink. And often they then focus on the consequences of that drink. Actually, it's not useful to do either of those things. What you really want to look at is the moment that leads to that drink, which is always before it. And it's usually the moment when you first think about it. So that moment when you first think about it, it, like the man that I I was saying, the man who was sitting at his desk at one in the afternoon and had work piled on him, he did drink later in the day. He drank when he got out of work about 5.30 or 6. Um, But the key moment in his addiction that day was back at 1 o'clock. It wasn't at 6. It had nothing to do with that. It was when he decided to drink. That's when the the event, the key event occurred because he solved his helplessness trap by deciding to drink. 
So if he were to now go back and want to understand his addiction and have a better chance of controlling it the next time, he would look at that moment. He would say, what was going on in that moment? You know, That was the key moment in his addiction when he started down the path to it. And that's the moment at which he solved his, his helplessness by deciding to have the drink. In fact, once he decided to have a drink, it was interesting. He was able to just go back to work. He was no longer upset. I mean, he was a little upset, but he wasn't outraged anymore. Why? Because he wasn't trapped. He knew he had made a way out for himself. Yeah, that sounds very familiar to me. So, and I think familiar to many of uh, people in our organization, many of our listeners out there who have struggled with addiction issues themselves. So then you have step four, um, how you keep yourself from seeing the addiction ahead of you. Right. So now... If, if if this were a, a simpler world, then once you knew, you, you learned this, then you could say, okay, I see the key moment, and, um, you know, I'll just recognize the key moments, which is really where you want to get to in the future. But it turns out that we are more complicated than that as people. We often keep ourselves from seeing it. And there are a couple of factors in that. One is uh, the drive to perform the addictive behavior, which is very strong, itself often blinds us to the ways that we are heading down that path. Uh, one of the other stories uh, in the book is about a man who, uh, also with alcoholism, who doesn't think that he is having, uh, that he's on the path to, toward getting his, uh, uh, toward getting a drink again, but he's sitting at his home, he's deciding which store to go to, which grocery store to go to to buy some, some items. And he says, hmm, I think I'll go to this one that's in this big mall. And he was unconscious of the fact that the reason that he chose that one is because in that mall was a liquor store where he could go get some liquor. He realized this later, of course. But for him, the key moment was, uh, which would have been the moment he decided to go to that particular store because he was on the way. He was literally on the way, but figuratively he was on the way to getting a drink at that point. He had already made the decision. He just didn't know it. So he kept that from himself because it was important to him to get the drink, and he he had a way of denying that to himself. But there are, there are other factors too. People have patterns of denial for themselves, patterns of defense. They have styles. We all have styles. So, uh, in another example, for instance, I describe a woman who, whenever she has something that is terribly upsetting to her, that would make her angry, for example, instead of getting angry, she would get confused. She would say, I wonder what that was about. Hmm, that seems strange. Uh, I can't figure out what he, what, what was he really say, saying to me. I mean, in, in, in the example, uh, she has a, a very discouraging interview with somebody who's not really insulting, but very sort of demeaning in his attitude. And she walks out of the interview saying, huh, I wonder what he was saying. What did that mean? Uh, instead of uh, knowing how angry she was with him. So having that kind of style... Uh, meant that when she was heading toward a drink, she also kept herself confused. So one of the takeaways from this chapter is you can learn your own defensive style. You only have one, so you'll keep seeing it. And when people do learn their style, their way of keeping themselves from seeing what's going on emotionally for them, uh, they can turn the tables on it, and they can notice that when they are, like this woman, when she started to get confused, she could have said, "Uh uh-oh, I'm getting confused. Something else is going on. 
or you know, in other cases, it was a man who always dealt with everything by making elaborate plans and becoming very determined and defeating them, saying, by God, I'm not going to do this, or I am going to do that. And he felt like he was launching a kind of military operation. But it was really a defense to uh, uh, not think about how frightened he was and, and how, uh, how much he felt he needed to, to go uh, get a drug and so forth. So that's what that step is about. Okay, then we have step five, understanding what is happening at the key moment in addiction. Right. This is this is where uh, I focus on the helplessness part of it. Um, helplessness, powerlessness uh, is always the feeling that leads eventually to the addictive behavior. Although, as I said, it, it's, it's always sometime before it, sometimes hours or even days before it. So... If you can notice uh, when you have these key moments, when you first think about doing the behavior, and you stop and think about what's going on in that moment, you will always find that there is some form of helplessness. Now, this helplessness varies. It's it's quite individual. It's different from person to person. Uh, But it's very useful to learn your own sensitivity because everybody is is different, but again, you only will have one core set of issues, one theme in your life that always comes up. So the the surface may look different. It may be that one time you're you're if you're a student, let's say you're in class and the teacher you always get upset with the teacher, but another time it's that you're upset with you know a a pompous waiter at a restaurant. And another time, it's somebody else. And you gradually get the the theme of it. You say, oh, anybody who treats me in a dismissive way or is an authority in some way, that sets me off when they don't treat me right. So you can learn the kind of things that are for you uh, the the overwhelming um, experiences that make you feel helpless. And that's what that's about. So, again, it's a way of turning the tables on it because even if you don't notice that you are heading for a uh, uh, an addictive act, you can notice those moments of helplessness, and you can say, I'm, "It's happening again." So even though I didn't realize it, this is exactly the sort of moment that leads me to do my addictive behavior. And that brings us uh, to step six, which short-term strategies for dealing with addiction. Yeah. So once you have that moment, you know. W- w- you say, okay, I, I, I feel like having uh, a drink or whatever. You know, what can you do? Well, um, one of the things is that uh, you can, um, if the situation is fairly straightforward, and I give a number of examples in the book. In other words, it's like the, uh, uh, the man has, who's at his desk. And he, he recognizes that this he's just had his his key moment. He thought he's going to have a drink four hours from now. What could he have done? Well, sometimes you can just do something that is the direct action. I mean, these these solutions are very simple. Anyone can think of them because they are simply the thing that you would have done if you didn't do the addiction. I already said for this man, um, it would have been to he could have walked into his boss and talked to him. He had any number of things he could do. In another case that's in the book, there's a woman who felt obliged to give parties for people. She was always serving others, 
and she felt that it was her moral obligation to pay no attention to her own needs. So she kept doing it, but every time she did it, she would do it and then she would drink. Actually, in her case, she took pills. So she would do it and then she took pills. Well, um, the kind of solution that she could have come to, and when she eventually solved this, she, she, she did, is she started to say no to things. Pretty simple. Doesn't require you know a lot of thought. Instead of saying yes to everything, of course I'll do this for you, she started saying no. And as soon as she started saying no, she stopped taking her pills. So that's a kind of a simple version of a of a short-term uh, solution. But there are some kinds of helplessness that are more complicated, and I discuss those in this chapter too. For example, let's say that it, you have a person who has suffered many, many losses. And so what he is most sensitive to is further losses. So let's say he has... Uh, He's dating somebody, and his his girlfriend breaks up with him. Well, this is a big a big loss, and it's just the sort of thing that would lead him to, in this case, the man I was talking about here was a heroin user. So it's just the sort of thing that would lead him to go back to using heroin. Okay. Well, there's no simple solution to this. He can't. There's no action he can take to undo the loss that he has suffered. But the thing that he can do is he can stop long enough to look into it, to see what it means to him, because that is always the ultimate solution to these things. It's true that he is losing his girlfriend, but the question he needs to ask himself is, why does that make me feel so overwhelmed? So the answer to that kind of question is always something deeper within the individual. In his case, I said he had already suffered a lot of losses in his life. Well, he could cast his mind back to that. He could recognize that this loss is serious, but, you know, what it really is doing is reminding him of all the early losses he had. And as bad as this loss is, it really isn't the same as the early losses he had because he had had uh, losses in his childhood, which were very severe. So having that kind of perspective, easier said than done, admittedly, but to have that kind of perspective on it uh, is a way to step out of the helplessness trap. Because once you are, in effect, looking at yourself from outside yourself and thinking about what this means to you, you're really no longer helpless. Uh, now, there are a few other things, of course, um, that I talk about in the chapter. The... Um, the uh, uh, you know, for the for the situations that are somewhat simpler, uh, you can do things like uh, leave them. You know, you can just you can just go away when you've got a situation that's intolerable for you. Some people feel that that's you know it's running away, but actually it's protecting yourself in a healthy healthy way. You can when you're forced to do something you don't want to, or you feel you're overwhelmed by. Um, if you have to do it, you can do something else later that you do like, and you can correct things after the fact. It seems like magic, but in one case, uh, I described a man who was unable to speak up in a in a group meeting, and he was very frustrated and annoyed with himself afterwards. And you know, he went off and he he did his addictive thing. But it wasn't too late, even though the meeting was over. He could have written a memo to the people in the room. He could have called them up. He could have done any many many things to get his points across that he had failed to say. Uh, so there, there are always ways, even if it's just focusing on your feelings and getting some perspective on them, there are always things you can do in the short term 
there's always a way out of the helplessness trap. Okay, those are some short-term solutions. Now we get to step seven, the last step, which is to find some long-term solutions for dealing with addictions. Well, these follow from what, everything that I've said before. That what you and this is the this this is the last step because once you're here, you really have the chance to uh, to uh, break the addiction uh, forever. Once you get it, once you've gone through all this, uh, and, and no one gets it instantly. But once you learn what the key issues are for yourself, once you learn to identify that key moment, one of the things that happens is you start to be able to identify it very, very far in advance. I'm talking about months in advance. I have a patient who can tell, told me back in, in July that she knew she would have a problem in October. Uh, why? It's pretty simple. She knew that the kind of thing that... She, the kind of situation that she always is overwhelmed by and feels trapped by was coming up. It was on the schedule. So she could talk about it and think about it way, way in advance. Plus, she, uh, after you know, having a lot of experience with this, she knew her own defensive style. She knew ways in which she would keep herself from, from uh, tracking her own, uh, her own feelings. So she had that. And finally, she, had, she knew herself. She knew the issues in her life that were always coming up, the theme of her life that always caused this problem. Um, so the, long is, in, in, the long-term solution is, in a sense, to know yourself so well that you know exactly when and where the urges will occur, and you know why they will. You have plenty of time to think them through, to take a more direct action, or to deal with it in a better way. And... You know, you're always on top of it instead of it being on top of you. One of the corollaries of this is that it went for people who are in professional treatment in psychotherapy, uh, it's always important to deal with the addiction in the therapy. It's a bad idea to say, I'll go off and talk to that counselor about my addiction while I'm talking to you about my therapy. Because addiction is, first of all, a no more or less, as I said, than a psychological symptom. But second of all, it's very helpful to look at this, these factors in addiction because they will always be the things that are the most important to you in the rest of your life, too. Yeah, that's uh, something that uh, Andrew Tatarski and Pat Denning have both talked about in their books on harm reduction psychotherapy about dealing with the addiction and the uh, psychological issues at the same time, which is not the traditional way to do it, but it seems to be actually the better way to do it. Well, that's right, because the psychological issues, the addiction is the psychological issue. I mean, it's just a symptom of it. It's not, that's, that's why I said at the beginning, it's, you, the whole idea that addiction is this thing that is somewhere inside of you but separate from the rest of your psychology is a myth. I mean, it's it's no more or less than a symptom, like all your other symptoms, if you have others. Well, I think that's uh, quite true. And do you recommend that, uh, I mean, do you find that a lot of people can benefit from some kind of therapy to deal with the issues that are driving their addictions, things like depression or anxiety, social phobia, senses of loss? Uh, is that your experience? Absolutely. I mean, of course, that's what I, I do. I, I'm a psychotherapist and a psychoanalyst, but... Uh, I, I have to say that, you know, people in general, uh, we, we all have some problems. It doesn't mean everybody should be in therapy. 
But if you have problems that are more or less lifelong, they're not just that month, and they continue to bother you, you deserve to be in a therapy to work it out. And, you know, if one of those problems is an addiction, you know, you have to be very careful because, as you pointed out from your own experience, there's a lot of bad treatment around. And you want to avoid people who are going to tell you things like you were told that you're a liar or you're, you know, you're different from other people or you're a drunk or whatever. You want to avoid all that stuff. You want to see somebody who's going to talk to you as if you're a human being and understand the addiction in the way I've described as a symptom of some feelings of, of being overwhelmed and, and uh, helpless. Yes, I found that actually bibliotherapy helped me a lot. I read uh, about cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral self-help, and that's helped me to pull myself out of where I was. I think bibliotherapy can be good for a lot of people. Some people really need to see a therapist. Some can also benefit from medications. So, and I think there are many, you know, different people respond to different schools of therapy. So some people like more a psychodynamic approach, some like a cognitive behavioral approach, some like um, a DBT approach or gestalt approach. There's different flavors for different people, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, certainly um, what if you, you know, go to see somebody, it would be nice to go to see somebody who is, capable in uh, all of these things or at least can understand them all so that you can be referred to the right to the right person otherwise you get you know you get whatever that one person does okay our first segment is coming to a close i see our second guest has called in we've been talking with dr lance dotus who is the author of breaking addiction also the author of the heart of addiction um his books are available on amazon and uh anywhere books are sold i recommend them very highly thank you dr lance dotus for being our guest this evening thank you for having me Okay, I'm going to bring our next guest on right now. Okay, well, thanks so much for the interview. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, Paula, are you there? I am, hello. Hello, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fantastic, thank you, and you? I'm doing good. Let me do a little introduction for the audience out there. This is okay. Paula DeSanto, who is the director and founder of Minnesota Alternatives, which is a non-12-step treatment approach. And tell us what you do at your treatment program. Well, I just tuned in to the very end of your conversation. I'm sorry, I guess I didn't realize that you were interviewing the doctor before me. I thought we were both on the same time, so I regret that I didn't hear more of it. But uh, what we do, is, what I heard is that you were talking about different approaches and, and how ideally you'd find people that work with kind of a style of approach that works for you. If I were to describe what we do, I would call it probably a humanistic approach. It's not, it's not a term I've, I've used before, but it, it seems to fit, and I've heard other people describe our program as being very hum, humanistic. In other words, um, really trying to meet people where they're at and be kind and, and helpful, whatever that looks like. Now, are you aimed at abstinence only? No. Our approach is, again, really emphasizing individualized interventions, uh, a big emphasis on engaging people, and with that comes meeting them wherever they're at. So goals other than abstinence are certainly reasonable starting places and also can be um, reasonable places to succeed and complete. Uh, we have people that certainly have abstinence as a goal, and for many people that is a, is a really good goal, and for others it may be you know, more harm reduction 
less use, less consequences, less harmful things used, perhaps. And tell us, what's the uh, address, the URL to your website? I'm sorry, could you say that again? The URL to your website. What the about that? What about the web uh, the web uh, what is the website? Yeah. Uh, what is the website address? Yeah. Uh, www.mnalternatives with an s.com. Okay. And what uh what brought you into this field? I have been practicing social work for over 28 years, I guess. And over the course of those years, just working with people in a lot of different situations, different um, treatment and, and residential and community-type settings, I I found, unfortunately, that there were a lot of, a lot of people that I was talking with in terms of the clients and the consumers that had been in um, conventional, if you will, forms of treatment a lot of times and um, had been kind of been told consistently that they, they had failed treatment and and that uh, talking with them, just a lot of stories, I guess, about dissatisfaction, some concerns about feeling that, I don't know, that they were kind of herded in and out or that the, they didn't feel that they were actually talked with but more talked to. Um, how many times did they feel that they needed to kind of do the same things over and over and expect different results? And, and probably more, you know, of greater concern was that they felt that there really wasn't an atmosphere of authenticity and honesty and that there was a kind of a, a we-they thing or that people would be in group and say one thing and then they would leave group and kind of talk about what was really going on in their lives and what they really intended to do. And so it, it just, um, I just the stories of people feeling, I guess, not well served by some of the existing providers was what motivated me more than anything to start to come up with an alternative that I felt might be a more, I don't know, just a unique or in a different way. And if nothing else, to offer people an option. I, I do want to be real clear that I'm, I'm not anti-AA and I'm definitely not uh, anti-abstinence as a goal. I, I think, you know, 12-step programs have saved many lives and I know many people that have done well and continue to do well. My thought is just for people that haven't, uh, rather than considering them to be the failure, how about let's just looking at some different ways and different strategies and offering options so that people, kind of like, again, what you and the doctor were talking about, if, if people want to go to treatment, that they've got options and they can pick from a variety of different approaches. And so I'm just offering a, a different variety. Well, I certainly also uh, respect anyone that chooses AA or the 12 steps as their approach if they find it's working for them. I mean, I did a lot of work volunteering in needle exchange. It was kind of my internship into harm reduction, my self-imposed internship. It's how I learned it. And, uh, you know, about half the people that I was working with were members of 12-step programs. Uh, many of the others were still active drug users, but, you know, we all got along. The nice thing about that atmosphere was, you know, that nobody would ever tell anyone in uh, this in a needle exchange, you know, you would not tell other people what to do. You would not say, oh, well, here's your needles. Do you think you need treatment? You would just say, we're really glad you brought in the used needles off the street, and here's some clean ones, and please always use clean ones. They're available for you free here, so, you know. So yes. it was never it was never this. Uh, but, you know, so I, I was surprised later. Some of them, I didn't know that the director of my program there was a member of the 12-step group until I invited her uh, wants to be a guest speaker for our organization here. <laughs> she was telling me about that. And it was like, well, I never knew you were a member of Narcotics Anonymous. 
show. What a surprise. We were right, like, right. Well, I, I think again, it, you know, we there was people. There's so many people again that, and I and I, as I've been doing more and more of this work and talking about alternatives and different approaches, I was at a, a big, the big state annual conference a couple of weeks ago. It's the the Minnesota Recovery Conference, and and I had a booth there for a few days, and so I, you know, right on my sign it said real clear, you know, a, a unique approach non-AA to substance abuse treatment, and I got a lot of a lot of attention, I think, because that's just a kind of a, a bit of a unique uh, thing to see at, a, at an addiction conference in Minnesota. But the the response was really positive, and, and there were a lot of people that came up to me that, that definitely had, had used, um, you know, a 12-step approach that as part of their recovery that were still like, oh, it's great, you know. Um, there's so many ways, whatever people, whatever you get there, however you can improve your quality of life. And recovery, again, is many things. It's not necessarily abstinence. It's improved quality of life and better relationships and life purpose and um, you know, feeling better, functioning better. So th- those are all things that are about recovery, and and you can accomplish those sometimes with sobriety or not sobriety. I was at another workshop, really, really well done, and this doctor kind of said, you know, I I think we can maybe be a little bit hyper focused on abstinence because there's a lot of people I work with that are maintaining abstinence, but their their quality of life is really poor, and I know others that are. Are, are still using, but you know their their quality of life is better. So I think we got to look at at the whole the whole person and the whole picture. Well, I really think that the paradigm shift is happening. Uh, you know, ten years ago, you would have seen a lot more hardcore, hardline. You know, you do it the twelve steps. There's one way to do it. There's no other way. And I think it's really shifting, even in the mainstream treatment community, that more and more people. Are starting to say, well, there's more than there's more than one way to skin a cantaloupe, as we say sometimes. You know. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I concur. Uh, having been around, and you know, I when I first got into the business in mental health, whatever, almost three three decades ago now, we were kind of undergoing a paradigm shift. I think in mental health, there was still a lot of kind of medical model and the idea of recovery, you know, recovery-centered uh, principles and patient-centered interventions, and, and that whole kind of mental health recovery movement was just getting kind of moving, and, and I, I really did was able to participate and see over the last, you know, couple decades how the mental health system has really shifted a lot, and in, in, in mental health consumers have strong, you know, strong role in advocacy and policy development, and, and I think certainly I agree with, with the substance use field that there are some shifts happening, and and uh, and again, it's 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 a, it's just really the idea that that there should be a lot of options, and 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 people should have choices. And if something doesn't work, then try this, or if this feels like a better fit, or if you've got issues with a certain approach or a philosophy. So I I know, and doing this work here in the last couple of years, I'm I'm just recently getting some really um, positive feedback from some of the major health plans and. Uh, working, just going to have a meeting coming up with the University of Minnesota, you know, addictions uh, director, and and just the big kind of big institutions that are are are, are showing a lot of appreciation for some new ideas. So I, I agree. I, I do think that there's a lot of paradigm change happening. That's really good to hear. I'm also going to be presenting. Uh, in October at the uh, Addiction and Substance Abuse Providers uh, Conference uh, here for New York State. So this should be very interesting. I'm going to be talking a little bit about my book, which I I, know I shipped you a copy of. You gave me some really positive reviews on that. 
So yes, yes, and I thank you for 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 turning me onto that. I have since turned many others onto it. I I um, bought a handful here and just was had a conversation with a gentleman, uh, a really successful man who uh, had ran a company for many many years and just recently retired and ended up starting to drink too much but had no really interest in maintaining abstinence but really wanted to look at educating himself more and, and changing his pattern and I said hey I, I know the book for you and <laughs> and, uh, and similarly I, I gave it to another woman who um, has just undergone 10 days of inpatient at a hospital setting and I said here you know read this it just kind of supplement what you're learning in your in your other setting and even though she's in a program that you could call conventional you know she she was reading that and she shared that that she's gotten a lot a wealth of information from your book probably even more than what she's been learning in her 10 days inpatient so i yeah I, I really appreciate how much you put into kind of one simple guide yeah. uh, thank you i want to ask you a little bit more about your program uh, do you do outpatient or inpatient or both or how are you structured we are just outpatient I, okay uh, i've directed residential programs of various types over the years and i just decided uh I'm I'm ready to be done with residential, to be perfectly honest. So we're just an outpatient program. We have a real flexible schedule. We we do provide um, a lot of day and evening hours, and basically people put together a schedule that fits their lives and their needs. And so some people are here 20 hours a week and others are here three. And some people are here for a year and others are done in three weeks. It really depends on, you know, what they need to do before they come and what they do while they're here. Um, a lot of people kind of have done all their work and they just need to get the get the credential if you will and and others you know there's really complex issues and and they need a lot of structure and support for quite a long time and i've again really appreciated how the, the for the most part the referral sources or the funding sources are are on board with that idea of, of long-term engagement if needed uh, uh, how much staff do you have there we're a small team. Um, there's seven of us, all including our, our office manager. So we're a, a mix of, of uh, drug and alcohol and uh, mental health people and generally good-hearted people, I guess. So we're and we're you, small and in in you know pretty 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 intimate setting. And you cover uh, all different issues: uh, drug addiction, alcohol, uh, gambling. You know, we don't. We haven't had anybody that has. We've had people that gamble, but we haven't had people that have identified it as a problem. Um, I guess, to be honest, that hasn't really been a, a focus. Our focus is, again, with a real emphasis on, on trying to tailor what we do to meet the needs, the unique needs of the individual, and that and that can be a lot of work because, you know, when you have you know 30 people engaged in treatment, and, and again, our group size is not big. We keep groups small. But still, to try to really tailor what you do to meet each individual, it, 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 it's a lot, a lot of work, and and can uh, demand a lot of individual time, and and then a lot of flexibility with what you offer. And um, but our but our focus is is generally uh, again engagement, tailoring what we do to the individual, really highly highly and um, I don't know person-centered treatment planning. So the plan the plans reflect what they want to do. They're not our assignments. They're things they want to accomplish in their lives. And um, and then we, we teach skills. We have kind of a core list of skills that, that have proven to be very helpful in, in my life and in other other people's lives in terms of just ways to change your attitude a little bit and, and 
work with a lot of emotion-based stuff because people start to feel once they, they start using less typically, and, and oftentimes people are using because they don't want to feel. So we work with feelings. And, and then um, uh, this, the, we're, we've been, along with the skills, we've been trying to do a lot around um, uh, just calming people, helping people learn how to calm themselves down and using the meditation and the mindfulness and a lot of the, the mental imagery and the mental rehearsal when it comes to also changing and shaping new behaviors. I've I've been very impressed with um, this book that uh, was written by Dr. Joe Dispenza, Evolve Your Brain, and it's been an inspiring text to me around how to really integrate kind of the latest findings in the neurosciences now that we know a lot more about the brain and, and how it works and how we can really use it to serve ourselves well. And instead of thinking about it as a disease thing, we think about it as a really amazing piece of machinery that has a really outstanding capacity to 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 improve our lives. And so we really harness that and learn a lot about, about our, our, our brain capacity. Um, so those are the primary, I guess, primary modalities. Certainly within that, there's there's drug and alcohol education. Uh, we, we we tend to try to, again, do that on an individualized basis as well. But we do teach a lot about how about what happens with, you know, the, the neurotransmitters when we're in the GABA system and when we're taking alcohol or benzos or stimulants. And so we do quite a bit on, on neurochemicals. But, again, that all ties into the whole neuroscience and learning about the brain. We spend a lot of time on the nervous system as well in terms of the kind of the peripheral nervous system and ways that we learn how to calm ourselves down and understanding how that part of our nervous system works too. And, and that seems helpful. Again, I think when I'm finding that when people understand how their brains work in terms of the capacity and and um, kind of how that all translates into the greater nervous system, they really feel empowered to use their God-given gifts, if you will. So, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, we know that. <laughs> I mean, we know... <laughs> Uh, that people do use drugs and alcohol, you know, to alter their moods. I mean, they're, they're mood-altering chemicals. And, uh, well, at first they work. They generally work quite well at first, but then they have more and more problems attached. So it's good to learn other ways to alter your moods, you know, whether it's yeah. meditation, mindfulness, cognitive behavioral skills. There's all kinds of different things out there. Yes, you know, I read this book recently. Uh, it's called The Practical Neuroscience of the Buddha's Brain by Mendius and Hansen. Anyway, it, it was, you know, it was pretty, a little bit technical, but there was one page in there that I thought was fantastic. And, and basically it talked about how um, kind of from a, a neuroscientific approach that when you, when you have a, a, a negative feeling, a painful memory, even a traumatic memory, um, that you know becomes kind of hardwired in your brain because it's got all those emotional charges connected to it, and um, tend to contribute to kind of repetitive thought patterns, and therefore you know these emotional patterns that we get we get caught into. And and basically, he they talk about how you if you really kind of go to that place in terms of your your your, your you know your your neural network, um, and and then try to marry it and integrate it from a kind of a, 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 a you know neuro connective level with a positive a very positive emotion a very positive memory that that they really do kind of start to assimilate and and associate and that there's new neural structure that then marries and develops around that that positive that positive imagery and I, I'll share an example we had a gentleman that was in treatment here with us unfortunately very chronic and had had spent probably the last six years every 
few weeks in the hospital because of severe alcohol withdrawal because he basically would get right into a pattern of, of despair and, and self-hate and depression and suicidality and, and start to, to drink and binge drink and then boom, back in the hospital. Well, he came into treatment, and it wasn't an easy road, but basically his primary intervention was that whenever that pattern of thought started to kind of appear for him, he would e- try to immediately go to his one of his best childhood memories, which was fishing with his father. And very, you know, with a lot of imagery and activating all the senses, go fishing. And and it worked. And he completed our program. You know, he succeeded. He graduated. He had not been in the hospital since April. He's had a couple of use episodes, but they've been very moderate. And they didn't go into the full binge, you know, withdrawal process. And and it was really, it was, it was. If if you talk to him, he'll tell you that's what that's what that's what he did, and that's what seemed to work, which is seems incredibly simplistic but very powerful well that's interesting because you know that's almost exactly the same thing i did except the imagery wasn't fishing but it was Mm -hmm. to stop those extremely negative black thoughts that you know i knew if i was thinking about these things it was going to just bring me down into the depression Mm -hmm. and you know and i just learned that you know you, you you see this thought coming and you say stop and then you find a different thought that's pleasant to put in its place. And, you know, you hold on to that one and tell the other one, you know, stay away. I don't need you. You're not, you don't mean me any good. So, you know, I'm going to stick with the good one. And right. That's, and that's really, you know, that's that was my big turnaround was to learn that skill. That was the big turnaround for me. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and again, you know, it's it's showing now with these you know functional MRIs and we can actually see what's happening and 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 you know we're we're by by choosing you know new thoughts and and kind of those positive cognitions you really are activating different parts of your brain and and truly developing new neural structure and so with, based on positive memory and positive emotion it's fantastic and and when when clients see this again and, and understand what's really happening in terms of you know getting out of some of those kind of hardwired patterns and and really activating their frontal lobe we've got these handouts that there is your frontal lobe on or is it off you know. <laughs> and uh, seriously, and it's like, oh, geez. So, or, or they'll come in and say, oh, I really wasn't engaging my frontal lobe. I was really caught in this negative pattern. And just, 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 just that level of empowerment, and that's such a different way of thinking about their brains instead of being Ill, Ill or diseased. And, and again, I, I, I know that that's a whole other conversation. I don't want to go there. And I know that that there's been great strides in, in destigmatizing, you know, the addiction. Um, uh, challenges and and being able to make this a, a medically necessary illness, which is very imperative that there be medical treatment. Um, but I do think that there's ways to still uh, treat it as an illness and 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 at the same time conceptually try to to frame it more in a in a in a wellness model. So. Yeah, I have a lot of problems with the uh, new ASAM definition of this is a brain disease. I think it's just. That's the worst thing to tell anyone that you could possibly tell them. Well, yeah, I hear that, and I, at the same time, I, I know that, that the, the value of, of it being medically, you know, accessible to people and, and paid for by our by our, our, our medical funding stream. So I I can appreciate that, but at the same time, I think we can talk about it that if there's 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 an illness here, definitely an illness, and and it can progress to a very serious disease if it, if it's not if it's not managed, just like other illnesses can progress to very serious have very serious complications. Um, but I, I think it gets troublesome when we start to talk about chronic or necessarily even progressive. 
you know, and, and in, instead more about um, there, this, this, there is, this is, this has the capacity to be sort of a very serious illness, if not, you know, if not, if not managed. And but, but the idea that, yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I have seen people think, okay, well, it's a disease. It's not something I can control. It's out of my control. So when they do have a use episode, they slip right into this. Well, it's just my disease. My addiction has taken over. It wasn't really anything that I did. And, and I've heard a lot of clients when we actually have, we've been able to have lots of, we have a lot of good, candid conversations about that whole concept. And, and, and for the most part, people say, no, it's, I'm not, you know, I'm not powerless. I'm the one that did it. I, I'm the one that put it in my mouth. And, and, uh, and that, it feels like that's just a, that's more of just an out. It's a, it's a, you know, a, a free pass when you start to talk like that. So it, it makes for some interesting discussions. Well, there is, uh, I think, possibly a good way that you could compare it to diabetes because people with diabetes, you know, they can frequently control it a great deal with their diet and, you know, they are powerful. You know, they can make it worse or they can make it better by choosing what, by what they choose to do. They're not powerless over it. Right. Sure. Absolutely. And so this is very much uh, the same thing. You know, you are not, you know, you're not powerless over whether or not you put that that drink in your mouth. You know, but you may you may need to learn, you know, other coping skills because it, you know, Pat Denning talks about this. If that's the only coping skill you've got, you know, you can't take that away from the person. If you know, drugs and drink are the only coping skill they have. That's what they have that's keeping them alive. You have to give them new coping skills first before you can talk about getting rid of the old coping skills. Right. Well, I, yeah, it reminds me of a something I heard the other day, which I just really grabbed onto when I hear these pearls of wisdom. I just grab them. But I was talking with a gentleman. He says, yeah, I, I heard this, that in general there are two reasons people change. Um, one, because they hurt enough, they have to. Or two, because they learn enough, they want to. And so I, I kind of just building on what you're talking about that that uh, if people are, are are using drugs and alcohol to cope, well, let's try to teach them some new strategies to cope, and maybe that they'll find that they're learning enough that they that they want to change, and they don't have to bottom out before they're going to change, you know. And so we we really really focus on how can we inspire people so that they're learning enough that they want to change, and then that we're teaching them really practical things that that are easily generalizable to their lives. So they they they've got tools in their toolkit besides their their, their booze and their drugs doesn't mean that they got to take them out, but let's just throw a handful of tools in there as well. Just fill it up. Okay, do you work with any people that are on maintenance therapies like methadone or buprenorphine? We do. We don't offer the those uh, medication assisted therapies on site, but we certainly have clients that use them. That's very hey. consistent. And the same with the benzos. We got you know for an- anxiety. And you find that it's very comfortable with your approach. Oh yes. Because you know, you know the some of the old-fashioned treatments they just said you know, no, we can't deal with you if you're on those. Those are drugs. You know, they just want to throw you, know, you I, out. I, I, I hate to believe it's still happening, but it is. I was at, actually at that conference just a couple of weeks ago, and I was a gal came up to someone who I was standing next to, and she was seeking counsel from him, and she said, I, I need a referral for a program. I, I, I'm working, I do a group out in, you know, this community, and, and I got a gal that had this surgery on her knee, and now she's on, on, on opiates, and I can't have her in group anymore. And I thought, wow, wow. Well, 
Where does she live? <laughs> I mean, I just I, I thought I said I said is is that a rule? I just I, I anyway, but yeah, no, so yeah. Well, I know that people have gone to really real extremes. I mean, there are people that are in the hospital. They're going to die in three days. They're in terrible pain, and the doctor's saying, "Well, he's a drug addict. I can't give him morphine." You know, what's the difference if you're going to be dead in three days? Don't go out in pain, you know. Yeah, that's pretty bizarre. But you know, no, I, 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 uh, I, uh, I actually have a for good friend and colleague, a local doctor here, psychiatrist, who has referred quite a well, a couple of people, but we've worked collectively on a handful of issues, and, and uh, he referred a client that had just gotten out of an inpatient program and basically smoked and drank everything he could, and when he was referred to me, he was drinking, a, oh, I think oh, at least a 1.75 whiskey a day and, and just uh, pretty, pretty, pretty difficult and, and high risk and a lot of health issues, and and when he finished, while he was in treatment, he did cut back, and he he, he went from um, whiskey to to wine, and um, and and when he finished, he was still drinking, but he uh, really had stabilized in terms of the a lot of the high risk behaviors. But he was on a hefty, hefty dose of klonopin. Currently, he's sober. He's actually chosen abstinence. He's quit smoking. He's um, not drinking at all. He smokes a little bit of pot. But he's on, you know, like eight milligrams of clonopin. But again, if you look at this guy's history, he has higher quality of life and more stability than he has ever had. And in my opinion, he's a great success. But you know, in in other settings, people would say he's still using. Um, so again, but his 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 level of functioning, his general health, his quality of life dramatically improved, and and you know the the risk factors pretty much just diminished. So. Yeah, I have to agree that that is a great success. And you know, anytime people can move on to something better than they had before, that's a great success. It's all about you know improvement of quality of life. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm excited. I I I have I, I was bold enough. I don't know if it was I I was speaking at the the conference here a couple of weeks ago, and I. I am I'm rolling out what I call a, a model and it's called the Minnesota Alternative and it just anchors in these things that we've spoke about here tonight and just to again offer a, a different model per se and an alternative to the Minnesota model we've got now the Minnesota Alternative so I hoping to be able to give people that that structure that they can then if they want to try to integrate something that here here's some here's some kind of parameters and some some bare bones structure to start with, and try some of the concepts on. Try some of the interventions, and even if you just take a few of them and integrate them, see, just start to morph things a little bit. So, well, we'll see. It sounds like you're mo- sounds like you're moving in really good directions there, and we're just about out of time. So, any last words you want to leave us with? No, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm always glad to be able to share a story or two. So, thank you for asking me. Thank you very much for being a guest on our Yes? Thank you for your work, too, Ken. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for being a guest on our show this evening. And everybody come back next week when our guests will be. We'll be having Bill White back. He's going to talk a little bit more about the history of treatment. We're going to talk about the, the history of treatment in the latter half of the 20th century, the rapid growth, also some of the abuses that occurred and some of the ethics 
things that were put into place to try to prevent some of the abuses. Then our second guest will be Stephen Hayes, who is the inventor of acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT therapy. So we'll see you all next week. Thank you very much, and good night. Good night. Thanks.